Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, voting. We had more voting this week after a bit of a long break over July. We jumped right back into primary season on August 7th. Plus, we had the final special election before the midterms. We're going to uh, talk through what it all means with a few of our crack political reporters. Plus, Congressman Chris Collins arrested this week and charged with insider trading. Are there more shoes to drop on this one? Uh, We have a couple experts on that case who are going to be here to talk us through what's happening, what other members of Congress are tangentially involved, and what it could mean for the fall elections. A reminder before we jump into all that to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin... We are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, August 9th, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We've got all our political heavy hitters here, uh, Elena Schneider and Alex Eisenstadt, who have been on the road covering the midterms, but are here with us in person in the studio. Hey, guys. Hi, Elena. Hi there. Alex, thanks for being here. Sure thing. And on the line from Politico, California, the great David Siders. Hi, David. Hi. Thank you for being here as well. It's time for our first data point. One, that's one percentage point, less than one percentage point, actually. And that was the margin separating Republican Troy Balderson from Democrat Danny O'Connor in the race for a uh, congressional seat in the Columbus, Ohio area. It was left uh, open earlier this year when former Congressman Pat Tiberi resigned to uh, take a, a business league job in a lucrative Ohio. job yeah super lucrative and uh anyway so they, they had this late special election in august just three months before the same two candidates are gonna face each other again in november uh, but they got to spend millions of dollars beating the crap out of each other first and uh, balderson is currently leading by a little bit less than that percentage point we mentioned the race hasn't actually been called yet because there's still some provisional ballots outstanding but it looks like he is going to be a uh, member of congress to you know fill out at least the the few months of this term uh, to uh, uh, before they meet again in in the general, Elena, this seat is generally a safe bet for Republicans. It has been in Republicans' hands since before either of us were born. Uh, but like so many other special elections we've seen this year, uh, it ended up being a barn burner uh, toward the end. What what did you see when you were there uh, last week about how this race kind of developed and and how it fits into the broader picture of what we've seen? all year leading up to the elections? Well, I think what I have been watching for ever since actually Georgia last uh, last summer, in which there was all this talk after John Ossoff failed to, to topple Karen Handel, would this sort of level of enthusiasm, donor intensity, democratic energy, would that persist after that, especially after a loss like that? And this is just, in Ohio, the latest data point that 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 energy is sustained. And in fact, it's probably growing at this point as we're almost, we're basically 90 days out from the election. So one of the things that I was really watching right after was turnout. Uh, Franklin County and Delaware County are the two suburban parts of this district. 
and 42% of voters turned out there. In comparison, in the uh, handful of rural, much more rural counties, turnout was somewhere between 27 and 32%. So that's a significant gap that speaks to sort of, again, this enthusiasm problem that Republicans are going to have, and they're not going to be able to send Donald Trump to every single district's sort of rural counties to try and boost turnout there. And they're not going to be able to spend millions of dollars in each one of these sort of marginal Republican-leaning, traditionally Republican seats. So I think even though Democrats are probably going to w- walk away with another loss here, they, they can take a lot of really good signs from sort of a lot of really good silver linings for them in this cloud. Alex, what did what did you see uh, in, in, in your coverage of the race that speaks to the, the the broader landscape? Again, this is a district that President Donald Trump won by 11 points in, in 2016 that Pat Tiberi, the former representative, usually won 60 plus percent. And, and we're talking about a 50-49 race uh, yeah. at the end of the day. I, I was struck by just how hard Republicans were working to sort of motivate and get their voters enthusiastic about heading to the polls. Now, in some respects, I don't think this was a perfect uh, race to look at in that regard because it was on August 7th and a lot of people are on vacation and a lot of people are thinking about things other than politics right now. But I do think it speaks to some kind of broader issues that the party faces heading into the post-Labor Day period where they do need to figure out how to get their voters enthusiastic about going to the polls. And so how do they do that? Do they do it by going after Nancy Pelosi? Do they do it by bringing out pro-Trump messaging? Do they do it by bringing the president and the vice president? How do they how do they do this? And how do they do this in these more complex suburban districts where the, the House battlefield is, is, is largely being fought? I would make one more point about this race, which is that I do think that to some extent Republicans did dodge, uh, they did dodge a bit of a bullet here because I think had they lost this race, that it would have been a, a real disaster for the party. And I think it would have potentially impacted things moving forward. And it would have uh, really set, sent off shockwaves throughout the GOP conference uh, from a lot of people who maybe didn't think they had a race heading into this. And potentially one, one potential... Uh, piece of fallout from that could have been that the you know the, the money spigot would have turned off. And right. You were saying like Republicans are trying to figure out how to motivate their voters to match this latent Democratic enthusiasm. One of the ways they've done it in all these special elections is by spending just a ton of money through congressional leadership fund, the super PAC, right, right. Elena? Yeah, exactly. And they and this is going to be a serious issue that's actually persisted. I mean, look, 56 House Republicans were out raised last quarter. And if they lost here, those donors, I think, would have just said, forget it. We're going to just focus on the Senate and you know, you House candidates, you know, good luck. And I still don't think that the money picture for the House candidates looks very good. And again, it goes back to this problem of when you're when you're relying on an outside group to bail you out, there are a lot of complications that come with that. There's a lot of uh, sort of miscommunication, over overdoing of a certain message. You don't have a lot of control over the where the race is going. And I think we saw a bit of that in Ohio when they were throwing the whole kitchen sink at right. this race. And right. they were testing five different messages. They pulled out Ted Strickland at a certain point. They were trying all these different things, I think, in part because they were trying to see what stuck, but also because there were all these different groups trying to work together, even though technically it's illegal for them to work together. So that's the special election uh, outlook. It is the final one out of this long, like, 18-month <laughs> odyssey that we've I all can't believe it's over. <laughs> been on together before the November elections, uh, which are coming up in, in just like 12 or 13 weeks. Meanwhile... 
we have uh, on Tuesday and continuing through the rest of August, the final round of primaries are heading out. Some uh, in a bunch of states around the country, the parties are still choosing their candidates in some of these battleground uh, House and Senate and gubernatorial races. Uh, David, can you you uh, walk us through what struck you most from the latest round of the primaries? We had races in Kansas, Michigan, uh, Missouri, and Washington on Tuesday night. What, what I was struck by on Tuesday night was the uh, the performance of Bernie Sanders endorsed candidates, the uh, the loss in the Michigan governor's race, and then the, the House race in Kansas with a former uh, Sanders staffer. I think it just continued a, a succession of losses he's had over the past 18 months, um, and probably, well, maybe says something about, about how strong he is as a candidate in 2020, should he choose to run. I think I, I, w- I was very struck by that. You know, we were watching, there was a lot of interest in seeing how Abdul El-Sayed would do in Michigan in that governor's race after the Sanders endorsement, right? Brent Welder in Kansas in that battleground district, the third district outside Kansas City. But, you know, one of the things I wonder, is it entirely fair to judge Sanders just on wins and losses for his, his candidate and, and his movement? Because he, he's he's picking, almost by definition, he's picking underdogs in most of these places. Right, Elena? Yeah, I don't think that he's necessarily expecting these people to always win. And I don't know if that's necessarily the... And David, I mean, like, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, but I don't know if that's necessarily always the goal. I think the goal overall is to move the party to the left in terms of their platform. We are bringing out huge turnouts and creating excitement all over this country. And even a year ago, when I was talking to Democratic candidates about health care and whether they supported Sanders' Medicare for all, there were a lot of candidates who were sort of like, oh, we're not sure. But usually there was at least one in each of these battleground races who said, yes, I'm for it. And oftentimes that forced those candidates who, even if they didn't win, forced the people who did win to either take a position on it or often move to the left. And take Gil Cisneros in California as one example of somebody who initially was pretty wishy-washy on where he stood on Medicare for All, had tons of other Democratic primary opponents in that race, and eventually by the end of it, now he supports it. I think that's interesting, and I think that's, I think you're exactly right, that he, has, he cares about this issue movement. And that was the whole argument coming out of 2016, right, was that Sanders, even in defeat, could have victory and sway over the party by pushing issues. And just like you say, you know, Medicare for all, there's a reason that that's now not a taboo subject among, uh, you know, kind of standard, in the standard Democratic Party line, things like that. Uh, But I I will say that you get involved and you come and you say, I'm going to help this candidate win, and you don't, that speaks to another problem that that he had in 2016. And that was actually putting a victory behind, behind these ideas. So he can say he's moving the party and the party's moving left, but then when the party votes, uh, it votes for the more centrist. You know, in 2016, it was Hillary Clinton. What's it going to be in 2020? I don't know. Like, the only person, if you look at you know, national polls of Democrats, right, Bernie Sanders is doing very, very well, but, but the, the one person who seems to do better is Joe Biden, a, a, more, a more centrist Democrat. I don't think that he's helped by, you know, every couple of months you see a story that says Bernie Sanders is losing again. And I'm not sure that there aren't organizational things that he could do to boost his case. In Michigan, for example, what did he come in? He came into that race, was it two, three weeks or something? Before I think it was the, two weeks, yeah. The election? Yeah, well, that's, that's weird. Why not come in two months before the election? It just, it speaks, I think, to some organizational issue that needs to get cleaned up before 2020 if he runs. Now, that being said, after November, I don't think anybody's going to talk about, you're not going to see the name Welder ever talked about, right? Nobody's going to care about a win and loss record in the 
in the midterms, I don't think. So in that case, I think you're right. I think it is then what he's done to the ideas. I think what what it also speaks to, though, is that it's and the, there's this idea sometimes that certainly um, backers of Sanders and the groups that have sprouted up around him kind of, kind of push that that this movement is the source of energy in the Democratic Party. And but it, but it's very clear watching these these primary results, and I'm curious what you think about this, Alex, that, that, that there, there are other sources out there. I mean, you look at Michigan, right? There was all this progressive energy behind Abdul El-Sayed. Yes, but uh, they also nominated uh, four women in the uh, to, to carry the Democratic flag in the governor's race and the three battleground house districts, right? And, and we've that, that's a continuation of a theme mm. that we've seen. Uh, every, the, the, the woman who beat uh, uh, Brent Welder in Kansas 3, also in, in the primary there, also fits into this pattern, right? It's, it's, not, just, uh, it's not just ideology and, and progressivism that, that's, that's, that's you know, pouring energy into the Democratic Party right now. There's also a lot of energy behind nominating women, behind uh, behind a whole bunch of other different things. Right. And we'll see how that spills out after November when the uh, Democratic nomination fight gets underway because there's going to be this whole fight that's going to play out uh, in the party over over whether they need to nominate someone who is a woman, whether they need to nominate someone who, in, who embraces sort of uh, more of the identity politics kind of angle. There, it, it's all going to come to a head uh, early next year, probably. Elena, what else caught your eye on primary night? Obviously, you, you were very focused on, on Ohio 12, uh, be, you know, uh, because special elections. But, but what, what else were you looking at as, as the, you know, the returns came in, in in those four other states? We talked about Washington quite a bit uh, on, on, on the night itself. So I was really watching the results out of Washington. So Washington's one of those handful of states that does these all-party primaries that you'll remember was uh, such a headache for a lot of Democrats out in California. Washington also does this, where everyone is on the ballot, and uh, regardless of party, and you just vote for the candidate that you want to win. And so we use that sort of as a barometer to see where just generally, where generically people are voting Democrat versus voting Republican if you sort of add up all the Democratic totals and Republican totals. There are three districts in Washington that I think that we suddenly saw be become a little more competitive just simply based on the performance in these primaries. Three Republican-held districts. Exactly. So take Washington 8. This is a re- Republican-held but currently open seat um, because the, the congressman there retired. And the Republican who is running basically unopposed, almost as an incumbent, he's sitting on a million and – million point eight in in the bank, Dino Rossi, he wasn't able to crack 50%. Granted, he's a new, you know, he's not an incumbent, um, but that's certainly a show that, that, that there's some room for real growth there if Democrats' total vote share was more than his. And we saw similar signs of that in Washington 5 and Washington 3. So I think that we're, uh, I think I'm going to try and sell you on a trip to Seattle soon. Yeah, maybe we can make it happen. Um, the Yeah, I mean, just like, just like in California, I think the, the these all party primaries are are predictive that they're not always exactly right but the uh often democrats do a little bit better in the fall election than they do in the primary and so to see all of the democratic candidates combined get a little a, sh- a shade over 50% of the vote in that district was really interesting and then as you mentioned there were a couple others too that were a little bit more surprising um, David, I want to give you the last word here. As we look forward to next week's primaries, uh, something I know you've written about a little bit, uh, we're going to see the Democratic primaries in Wisconsin where um, the party's kind of looking at this state uh, as an opportunity to rebuild in territory that uh, obviously they kind of lost spectacularly in 2016 and also potentially take out an old nemesis and Governor Scott Walker while they do it. Honestly, I, 
I'm more interested in what's going on one state north, and that's in Minnesota next week. It'll be curious to me to see who gets picked out of the Democrats for the, the governor's race. The, you know, the DFL-endorsed candidate is a, one of these urban Democrats, I guess you could say, who's picked another urbanite for lieutenant governor, uh, pitched up against, well, a, a race with Rick Nolan on the lieutenant governor ticket, and I, I guess representing more of a rural that old Iron Range kind of yeah, rural exactly. Democratic. Yeah. So I'm curious how that, which way that'll go, and then obviously there's the primary in, in Nolan's district to see who will lose to the Republican up there. <laughs> all right. Well, we have all that and more to look forward to next week. Uh, remember, uh, on uh, we, we have a big uh, pre-election and election night package that you guys can follow. We usually do a live chat on Monday digging into an issue that's coming up that week. And then on Tuesday night, we also have another live chat digging through uh, the results as they come in. And you can also view all those results on, on Politico.com as it happens. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Elena. Of course. Thanks for having me. Alex, thanks for coming Thank in. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, David, thanks for jumping on the phone. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We've also got this breaking news from just a moment ago. Republican New York Congressman Chris Collins has been arrested. All right. We are going to move on to our next data point now. Our second segment is going to be all about this $768,000. That's how much money in stock losses were avoided, according to prosecutors, because of an insider trading scheme involving Congressman Chris Collins of New York and some of his uh, family members. Uh, we're going to unpack it with a couple new guests. We've got Kyle Cheney in the studio who covers Congress for Politico. Hey, Kyle. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And uh, on the phone from Albany, New York, Politico's Albany Bureau Chief, Jimmy Vilkind. Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Scott. All right. So uh, let's let's start big picture. Uh, Jimmy, can you just walk us through uh, Chris Collins' background? Like, who who is this particular member of Congress from Western New York? So Chris Collins has been styled himself as a political outsider for the last two decades as he's tried to get into politics and, and been elected to several political offices. He ran for county executive in 2007 as a Republican, uh, and he won a single term. He lost his re-election attempt in 2011 for that office in Erie County. And for listeners who don't know, Erie County is uh, kind of a good microcosm of, of the nation. You've got Buffalo, just sort of your classic Rust Belt city. And then around it, you've got some working class ethnic suburbs. Uh, and then you've got some real rural areas and, of course, some nicer suburbs as well. Um, so it's, it's a really good cross-section. And it has been pretty evenly split between Republicans and Democrats, and they, they fight like dogs and cats there. So Collins lost his re-election bid in 2011. But there was uh, a congressional vacancy in the seat that came open when Chris Lee uh, was caught uh, not wearing a shirt and uh, sending a picture of himself to some lady who was not his wife. It's possible uh, this district which... is cursed, I, I should interrupt to say. But anyway, it, carry on. It does seem, and it's so funny, you know, we look back at a sex scandal like that, and it seems so quaint by, by 2018 uh, uh, standards. Um, so there was a special election in which Kathy Hochul, at the time the Erie County clerk, uh, and a Democrat won. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, a kind of an anomalous win. It was a win that the Republicans did not expect. Uh, but she lost that seat in 
the 2012 election cycle to Collins, who was looking for a way to get back into politics, uh, and he beat Hochul and uh, has been able to hold on to that seat pretty handily. He has made the most news recently because he was the first member of Congress to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, he did so in 2016, uh, before Trump was steamrolling his way toward the Republican nomination. And so as Trump came to power, Collins had a, a measure of uh, influence and gravitas in terms of being a liaison between Congress and the White House, uh, informing the Trump transition. Uh, and he has been a staunch defender of the president. He's been a staunch supporter of the tax bill. Uh, he has a red district. Uh, and so as one of Trump's guys in Buffalo, he's sort of an outlier uh, in New York politics on the statewide level. That's a, a great primer. And this is why, you know, I, I feel like more people know his name than maybe a typical backbench member of Congress after the events of the last few years. But a lot of people know his name after yesterday, right, Kyle? And can, can you walk us through exactly what Collins has been accused of here? Sure. And I think a lot more people are going to know his name in the, in the coming weeks, too. So uh, Innate Immunotherapeutics, the company that Collins sits on the board of, it's a publicly traded company. Uh, he's the largest investor in this company. And he is alleged by prosecutors essentially to have actually the story is it's a great story. He was at the White House at a congressional picnic in 2017 and gets word that this company's uh, premier drug that it was working on, a multiple sclerosis drug, had failed its clinical trial. And that's very important information for the company's stock, uh, but it was not public yet. And yet he's alleged... When it became public, what, two weeks later? It only tanked, a, few, a few days later. A few it, days it, later. About it, four days it tanked later, the yeah. stock. It tanked the stock completely. Uh, but in that four-day interim, when he learned this at the congressional picnic at the White House and when that was made public, he alerted his son, who had uh, a lot of shares in this, in this company, he, and his son in turn alerted some fam other family and associates uh, who were able to sell their shares before the information became public. Uh, and so this is a, a classic sort of insider trading allegation uh, that Collins is accused of. And, uh, you know, it, it's why he's going to become a lot more famous than he already is. Yeah. And what, Jimmy, what, what did Collins have to say for himself when, uh, you know, he, he put out a, a his lawyers put out a pretty aggressive statement after the, the charges were released. And then uh, later in the day, he had uh, it wasn't really a press conference. It was more of a media Available uh, event, I guess, uh, for where where he he kind of pushed back pretty forcefully on all this. Well, he's pleaded not guilty. He maintains his innocence, and he says that he's going to continue in his seat in Congress, even though uh, there are some Democrats here in New York calling on him to resign. Uh, he has stressed that he did not personally benefit from this information. He did not sell any of his shares in immunotherapeutics, and he himself lost a lot of money by the collapse of that stock price. Now, this issue has been out there in the ether, not these specific allegations, these criminal allegations of insider trading, but the issue of conflicts arising from Collins' uh, position with the company have been the subject of inquiries from the Office of Congressional Ethics. There have been opinions. And so this, this has been simmering out there. And his response to those allegations has been forceful. Uh, I actually spoke with him in December of 2017. We wrote a profile about him. Uh, and he was talking about the OCE as being mall cops. He said that this was a witch hunt. Uh, a lot of it came up um, as a result of the push from the late Louise Slaughter, uh, a congresswoman from Rochester, who was the uh, author of the Stock Act, which really regulated 
insider trading by members of Congress. He called her a, quote, despicable person. Uh, and Louise Slaughter, if, if anyone knew her, was sort of a, a, an amenance, uh, an older woman who, who, who had a long career in public service and had a, a lot of support on both sides of the aisle, but, but Collins really shot at her. Uh, he, he wasn't too forceful in calling this a witch hunt and attacking prosecutors who were appointed by the Trump administration, but we'll yeah, see if that's yeah. going to be part of the strategy going forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, Kyle, can you walk us through that a little bit? Because I, I thought it was interesting that Collins uh, is, is so focused on this idea that he did not personally uh, sell any shares, which he he appears, and maybe this whole time, he was really focused on Louise Slaughter and the Stock Act, which is specifically about members of Congress trading on insider information, whereas there are other laws that cover kind of disseminating mm-hmm. insider information to others for their use. And, and prosecutors noted this in their in their indictment. They said, look, he, he, he's argued that, well, I didn't sell my shares, so therefore, you know, how, you know I, maybe I didn't do anything wrong. But it's the dissemination of that information. He, he helped his son... Uh, potentially, allegedly, uh, sell off his shares and save all the, that $768,000 number for a fr- uh, family and associates, that, that's got nothing to do with whether he, per, his personal fortune suffered. Uh, and so that's really sort of a, a more of a technical difference uh, when it comes to insider trading. Uh, you know, and, and as Jimmy pointed out, this is you know, one of the other reasons that prosecutors said he probably didn't sell his own shares is he was already being investigated by the Office of Congressional Ethics. If he sold off his shares, that would have raised all kinds of red flags uh, and and probably been more difficult logistically for him to do. So it's not just a, a given that, well, he didn't personally do something on his own shares. Therefore, he's he's not culpable. The, the, the crazy thing to me, and you, you have some great details on this, Kyle, is how like out in the open this relationship between Collins and this company was playing out in the halls of Congress. I mean, it, you and other reporters overheard it, him on the phone. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the more, more brazen things about this. I mean, I mean, the, uh, you know, there's footage and photos of Collins out there literally making the phone call to his, his son or his family right after the news about the drug uh, clinical trials came out, um, which is all, already remarkable. But Collins, you know, he's a very gregarious member. He's unavoidable for comment on almost every issue. You find him in the halls of the Capitol. He'll talk your ear off forever. And in, in between that, he's on the phone. He's on his cell phone constantly talking about extracurricular stuff, business deals, relationships, you know, probably discussing these exact uh, issues in ways within earshot of reporters. And he just seemed uh, not to be particularly concerned about uh, who was hearing him and what he was discussing. And he even talked in his uh, OCE uh, interviews when he was being investigated that about talking about these deals with members of Congress on the floor of the House. You know, that's where he may have convinced some of his colleagues to actually invest in this company, uh, which several of them did. And, and so that's a whole other leg of this story that hasn't really been explored yet. That he was pitching this mm-hmm. company to other members of Congress while sitting on one of the committees that like regulates right. this part of the economy. Exactly. Uh, at least at least five members, current and former, uh, invested. Uh, Can you run us through them? Sure. Uh, well, the biggest name is Tom Price, who became the Health and Human Services Secretary. Uh, he unloaded his shares in February 2017, so a few months before these insider trading allegations, and he, and he actually made a pretty significant profit uh, off of that, and that became controversial during his confirmation process, and we'll get a new look now, of course. Uh, you also have a couple of Texas members, uh, Congressman Culberson, uh, is is one of them, and he's uh, reportedly sold his shares in this company about ten days before all of this went down. So that's going to get a new look, uh, Mike. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, he's in a battleground race too. He is, uh, and maybe the one one who would feel the effects of this more if there's a spillover out beyond just Collins. 
Um, Mike Conaway in a very conservative district, but uh, unloaded his shares in November, according to an aide, uh, at a significant loss. So he's, uh, there are a lot of people who point to that and say, we hung on to our shares and you can't hit us for, for in, uh, having inside information uh, if they sold it well after the stock collapsed. Jimmy, we, we we just kind of started to to shift into the political implications. I mean, I I just said, you know, I'm I'm not an attorney. I wish Charlie Matessi and Esquire was here th- this week to uh, to walk us through some of the finer points. But this this sounds pretty bad to me. The allegations sound pretty bad to me. But what what about probably before this this goes to trial? I feel uh, we're going to see political implications. We just talked about Culberson. Jimmy, you gave us a nice rundown of Collins District. It's the most Republican leaning district in New York, uh, but we we know, as you said, that it, it it can it's capable of going democratic under under the right maybe unusual circumstances. So what what's the outlook for Collins in the November elections? All of a sudden, uh, it's it's still a little too early to tell. Uh, but let me just give a few numbers. There are about forty thousand more enrolled Republicans than Democrats, active voters in the district, and Donald Trump carried it by twenty four points. Uh, so if you consider the fact that he lost New York State as a whole, uh, this should give you a sense of the type of people who are voting. And that's a larger margin. Uh, remember, Trump performed better in upstate New York than Mitt Romney did against Barack Obama uh, or than John McCain did. So the numbers are in Chris Collins' favor. Uh, and I was actually talking with uh, Nate McMurray. He's the Democrat in the race. Um, he's the supervisor from a town just just actually outside the district, uh, Grand Island. It's a, a town in Niagara County. Um, he said that in the last 24 hours, the attention he's been getting, the money that's come into his race has, has just exploded exponentially. McMurray was sort of off the radar of state and national leaders, uh, and now he's on the radar. He's sort of um, elated by it. He told me this morning that he felt like Paul Revere, that he had been, you know, for months sort of pounding the drum about this and saying, you know, look, guys, we know about these relationships with Chris Collins. We know that there have been ethics investigations. This guy is dirty. Uh, He said that he felt as though the criminal indictment unsealed on Wednesday sort of was was a a moment of vindication uh, and a moment uh, that he hopes will make people see this race in a new light, see this district in a new light. Uh, and hopefully get him some of the resources and establishment support that he wants to marry with what he says he's already seen on the ground, which is people responding to these charges. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I really wonder if something competitive is going gonna, is gonna to erupt there. Because on the one hand, like you mentioned, you've got on one side of the scale, you've got the numbers, the kind of baseline numbers in the district. On the other hand, you have the political environment favoring Democrats, and then you pile the indictment on top of that. Well, and, and if, you, if you pull back the lens a little bit too, Democrats have been hoping and planning to uh, run nationally on this idea of uh, corruption in Washington, this, this end, you know, uh, ending corruption, stamping it out. And Chris Collins just handed them this perfect example uh, to run on. They've already been talking about things like Scott Pruitt at the EPA and uh, you know other, other examples uh, that have been kind of rampant recently. And, and now Chris Collins comes along. And so even if his, his own district may be out of reach, although it may be, maybe perhaps it isn't, um, but even if that's a tough, uh, heavy lift, uh, this could help them push that more naturally national message and, and, and make up some ground elsewhere. Oh, that's an interesting point. Jimmy, you were about to add something? Uh, I was going to say that we've seen the, the blue wave in New York in sort of off-cycle elections and a slew of state legislative special elections that happened in April. And in areas outside of big cities, it's been about a plus seven. Uh, now, like I said, Collins 
got literally double the amount of votes that his Democratic challenger uh, in 2016. Of course, no one was taking that race on the Democratic side very seriously. So this is not necessarily an election that would have been in play, even in the the strongest of sort of blue wave predictions. There are other seats in New York where uh, Democrats here and Democrats nationally are focusing their resources. So this was not necessarily on the, the radar to begin with. And um, it would have to be a situation like Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, but we've seen those, so I think right. it happen. I will say, you know, at the, at the very other end of New York, a couple elections ago, we did see a, a sitting Republican member facing indictment cruise to re-election in uh, Michael, Michael Graham in Staten Island in 2014. Of course, he ended up pleading guilty and resigning from the seat. Uh, afterward. He was he was one of four legislators. There were three state legislators, Republicans and Democrats that year, who were elected under indictment. Because we, we New Yorkers are a very forgiving bunch, I guess. New York, man. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, Kyle, uh, you, you well, I, I want to give you the last word here. You, you were writing um, uh, about the, the indictment and, and the kind of opening of the criminal proceedings uh, yesterday. What, what should we look for uh, going forward? What are kind of the, the, the next steps that we're going to see in that um, obviously, the election is also bearing down, so we've got kind of parallel tracks right. of, of we, justice moving we, here. We have to see what what kind of pressure do Washington Republicans put on Collins here. You know, his his press conference yesterday was about an hour, over an hour and a half late, and people were were speculating that maybe he's he's hearing from people in in D.C. about you know can can he weather this? Is it worth even trying to weather this? And ultimately, he said, "I'm running for re-election. I'm going to clear my name." Um, so we need to see. You know, Speaker Ryan kicked him off the, the Energy and Commerce Committee. Immediately, it was that was a quick reaction. Uh, that they're not always so quick to do that when it's not, you know, there hasn't been a guilty verdict. Uh, so it seems like there's already some skepticism among national Republicans about him. Uh, and does that increase as more facts come out in this case? Got it. All right. Well, we will definitely uh, be keeping a close eye on that as as it uh, develops. This is just the the. Well, it wasn't the first step in in this story, but it was certainly the most uh, the most important I think so far in this in this thing that's that's. Uh, been tracked for a while. Kyle, thank you so much for coming in the studio, joining us, talking us through it. Great to be here. And uh, Jimmy, thanks so much for hopping on the phone. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Happy to be here. All right. As promised, as we uh, take things out this week, we are going to turn them over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Brandon Hodgson, resident of Arkansas's 4th Congressional District, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Brandon, take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Brandon. Listeners, we found Brandon because he emailed in to say he was a fan of the Nerdcast. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week. Gerald Ford, dead today, mauled by a pack of wolves at the age of 84. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.